Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you today? I'm doing well, Lance. We're here in a studio. We're not out in the elements. We are not out in the elements. It's the end of January, so for just a little less than a day, we can continue to say, boy, traffic is moving slower than molasses in January. Uh, I knew you were going to make a molasses joke. Molasses in January joke. Because 100 years ago, in January, in Boston, was the Great Molasses Flood. Yeah, not really something to joke about. A lot of people died. This is kind of an, an insane moment in the history of Boston. January 15th, 1919, in the North End, they kept these molasses. It was over 2 million gallons of molasses that was kept in this silo container, this big storage tank. And due to a number of circumstances, one of them being inclement weather... It was very, very warm, very, very cold, very, very warm. And this tank, the rivets popped out and it essentially exploded, spilling the, the molasses in waves up to 30, 40, even at 50 feet high, right from the explosion, right from the tank. Molasses came spilling out and it pushed everything. It, it lifted cars, homes, people, just caused a, a wake of destruction in its path. And death. And uh, a lot of people died, a lot of people were injured, and a lot of people died because of the molasses flood. So this is kind of a story that is rooted in Boston, and we're both from this area, Lance, so it's kind of near and dear to us. It's a story we wanted to cover for a while. We just needed the right person to guide us, the right historian, and we met the right historian. His name is Anthony Samarco, and he has written a bunch of books about Boston history, so look him up, and he graciously agreed to jump on the phone with us for about 45 minutes, and he very eloquently described what happened on that day in 1919 in Boston. That's right. Anthony Samarco was a great guest on this episode for us. And check out his books. One of them is called Lost Boston, where I believe he talks a little bit about the molasses flood in that book. And that's a book about some of the lesser-known, rapidly fading moments in Boston history. And this molasses flood has faded away from people's memories. I grew up not far from the city of Boston, Lance, and I hadn't heard of it until just a few years ago. So I think it is important to put things like this out there again so people can be remembered of the history of the city. Follow us on Twitter at CrawlspacePod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at CrawlspacePodcast. And check out Stitcher Premium. Why? Stitcher Premium has all the Crawl Space old episodes. Archived episodes of Crawl Space. That's Check. right. Missing Maura Murray. We have done some creator commentary episodes, Lance, that you have got to check out if you're a mega fan of Missing Maura Murray. I agree. 
We say this all the time. I can't say it enough. Every time we do a creator commentary, I realize how important they are to us and to the listeners and to the case itself, to Moore's disappearance. There's information there that was one way back then. Things have changed. Things have developed, and we've eliminated certain things, and we've added certain things. So you get to hear us in present day talk over the old episodes, and we do give ourselves a fair amount of grief, but we do correct, add, or subtract other details that, that came along in the, in the meantime. Welcome to Crawl Space, and we are here today talking about the Great Molasses Flood of Boston in 1919. And we have a guest on. He is a Boston historian. He's the author of numerous books about Boston history, and he's covered the Great Molasses Flood. This is Anthony Samarco, and he's uh, taken some time out of his day to call in and join us on this special episode as we cover the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. How are you, Anthony? I'm well. Thank you for asking me. Oh, well, thank you for uh, for doing this. It is a remarkable moment in Boston history. When I first heard about this, I laughed, and then I realized like how bad that was. I know. I think a lot of people think of the molasses flood as something that's almost surreal. It's something that could never have possibly happened, but... At its centennial, I think a lot of people realize now that most people that were involved in it are now deceased, but it's something in a lot of ways that was something that created almost that wonderful overlay of different histories from the Boston Tea Party to the Great Molasses Flood. And I think many people realize in some ways the magnitude of it. It was a 2.3 million gallon tank. Yeah, okay, so take us back to that, because whenever somebody comes up, you know, whenever we're talking about it, someone says, how did that happen? So, Well, the funny thing was, the north end of Boston was an area that, after the Civil War, had changed decisively. It had gone from an area of royal governors and artisans, as well as merchants who lived jeep by chowl. But the idea was that the waterfront itself and Commercial Street and Atlantic Avenue actually run parallel to Boston Harbor would actually be developed as a commercial area, but there was still some residential. And the North End, which was probably the most densely settled area of Boston in the 19th century, had primarily immigrants, beginning with the Irish, followed by German and Russian Jews, Italians, and a smattering of over 21 different nationalities that had called Boston home since the 1860s. But the idea was that along Commercial Street, there was what was called the Purity Distilling Company. And this was something that actually used molasses to create ethanol. And molasses can be a sweetening agent. It can be used in the distillation of rum. But in this instance, this was a chemical company that was owned by the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. And what they did was to distill the molasses into ethanol. Well, the tank would actually hold 2.3 million gallons, but it was never checked by the weights and seals of the city of Boston and always leaked. And on January 15th of 1919, it was a typical day in Boston. It was two degrees when people awoke. But by noontime, the temperature had risen to 40 degrees. Oh, wow. And that Exactly. And I mean, the thing was, not only is molasses something that's a very dense agent, it was also something that actually heated up with the intensity of the heat. 
And, of course, it caused the seams of the tank to actually split. And this was a tank 50 feet tall. It was about 250 feet around, holding 2.3 million gallons of molasses that had recently been filled. And in that instance, the heat of the molasses caused it to continue to swell. And it was something that, in that instance, had a 25-foot tidal wave going at 35 miles an hour across Commercial Street, and it swept everything in its sight, from humans to horses to wagons, any sort of street debris. And I, I believe it was 21 people that had died. Dozens of horses either had died or had to be put down. And it was something that in a lot of ways you saw anywhere from two to three feet of molasses for over a week. Wow. Two to three feet of molasses. And you said that the tidal wave was up to 25 feet tall? It was. Because of the height of the tank at 50 feet, Right, it split towards the top. And when it cascaded down, which was basically anywhere from 25 to 30 feet, it actually had a tidal wave. And at 25 feet, it caused it in such a way that it was a normal driving time of today, roughly 35 miles an hour. So it was something that you could not escape it if you were in that area. Now, here we had a very densely settled area of the city. It was also a very dense commercial area, and it had people on the street. It was roughly 12.30 p.m., just at about the noontime hour, and in that instance, many people were either walking to or from their lunch hour. People were doing shopping. There were horses and wagons and carts and all sorts of things in the streets. And the surprising thing was there was a connector elevated railway between North Station and South Station that ran along Causeway Street, Commercial Street, and then Atlantic Avenue. And these two stations, North Station and South Station, are the major connectors even today for people going either north or south of the city. But there was a commercial aspect to it, and it had steel girders supporting the railroad. The intensity of the flood at 35 miles an hour pushed debris into the girders, and they actually buckled. So you can imagine in some ways Molasses, which we use today in our kitchen staple goods, is something that's a sweetening agent. But in this way, at a 25-foot tidal wave and at 35 miles an hour, it was something that was truly devastating. Yeah. So it did cause even steel to bend, and it also killed people and animals. Unbelievable. And uh, obviously th there's the expression, slow as molasses. Well, that didn't come from this story, did it? No. But, of course, anything that's heated has a little bit more of a flow. But, of course, at 40 degrees, it's still not a very warm day. But having gone from 2 degrees to 40 degrees in a matter of 5 or 6 hours, it was thought that the molasses itself had either begun to ferment, which caused the bubbling and heat, but it also was something that there was a tank that had never really been inspected. Popping of rivets, the splitting of the seams, and then, of course, when it cascaded down, there was just no escape. And the unseasonable warmth of the day, and, of course, many people realize Boston in January is usually a very cold time. It was something that truly did have devastating effects. Now, you're ju you just mentioned the 
the tank and the popping of the rivets, when people in that area experienced the beginning stages of this flood, they reported that it could have been gunshots, right? It, that's what the sound was? And I'm sure that was actually the rivets themselves popping from yeah. the swelling of the molasses. But the surprising thing was that this tank itself, which in many ways gave way that unfortunate day on January 15th, was also something that had been reported over the years as something that moaned and groaned and creaked morning, noon, and night because the tank would be continually filled with tankers coming into Boston Harbor with molasses. It would be pumped into the tank. And when we think of... 2.3 million gallons, you really don't think of the magnitude of this, but 50 feet high is something that you realize is a tank that's not just monumental, but it's filled to capacity. And molasses is really a denser substance than even water. So in that way, people had known that it was actually creaking, it was moaning, but it was also dripping molasses. And though this was intended to be used in the distillation of molasses into ethanol, it still was a sweetening agent. And there were stories that there were young children on the north end of Boston who would simply put a bucket under the leaking molasses and they would take it home. That it could then be used in baking or sweetening agents for bread or even just put on you know, cereal. But in that instance, it was something that people in Boston were well aware of it, but that the you know United States Industrial Alcohol Company that had bought Purity Distilling in 1917 was aware of it, but did nothing to circumvent the you know impending doom. This was something with the creaking and the moaning. This was something that the tank itself was warning people of. I believe so. In a lot of ways, there were watchmen and there were guards that were there, basically, because this was something that was, you know, a very important part of the economy. But it was also a very important business. Uh, Purity distilling was something in a lot of ways that still exists as a formation of a, a new business after this when the calamity happened. But it was something in a lot of ways that people were aware of. And it was also within a commercial and residential area. So people did hear it, you know, throughout the day and the evening. And and that sound that was so natural to some of those people around there, that's essentially just the wood tanker sort of shifting and bending? Well, it's the steel tanker. Okay. But the steel tanker itself would have actually not only moved in the the wind, you know, you still think of a building actually gently moving. It was on the waterfront. It was on solid land, but it was also something that the interior was shifting, and it, that was causing the creaking and the moaning of the various tank uh, rivets as well as seams to actually either swell and or contract. So whether it was actually quite warm, it would actually... Uh, expand. And if it was extremely cold as it was that morning at two degrees in Boston, it um, would actually retract. So in some ways, the tank itself was something that fluctuated according to the weather of the city. 
So there's some pictures out there, uh, and most of them uh, of the complete devastation, or most of the devastation, I should say, is taken from an elevated angle, and you're kind of looking down at all this debris and a lot of people in there. Um, but it, it just kind of looks like a, like a yard, like a messy yard full of just like like trash or debris or something. It's kind of hard to picture that these were houses and a street here. Well, there was. And a lot of these photographs were taken from the Boston Elevated Railway. And the railway was directly above the street. The Elevated Railway had actually been opened in the very late 19th century. And there was a major one that connected Sullivan Station in Boston and Roxbury. But this was a spur of it that connected North Station and South Station. Many people took photographs in the aftermath, and they did show these areas between what is today Commercial Street and the Boston waterfront, and there was debris. It was not only splintered wood, but Engine 31, which was a wooden fire station that was not only pushed off of its foundation, but it perched precariously on the edge of Boston Harbor. You also saw sheds. These were sheds that were used for not only fruits and vegetables for storage, but it was also the fact that many of these buildings themselves had just simply splintered. 35 miles an hour is not very fast today for an automobile to be driven. But when you have a tidal wave 20 feet, 25 feet in height at 35 miles an hour, and when it hits something and it pushes it, Everything seems to be pushed together, and in that instance, I think a lot of these buildings themselves were just simply destroyed by the intensity and the magnitude of that wave. How long did this go on for after it split open and started spilling out? Less than 10 minutes. The whole concept was, even though it actually split at the top and came down, the whole thing was over in less than 10 or 15 minutes. But the aftermath was just incredible. So here you had a day that was about 40 degrees. It was the height of the day. And many people themselves were injured. Many were killed outright. But the whole aspect was not only did the Boston Fire Department and the Boston Police Department descend upon the scene, but of course, curious onlookers. So here you had people just mired in molasses, horses, dogs, cats, everything imaginable. And though the area itself had anywhere from two to three feet in the thick molasses, by that late afternoon, the temperature had dropped again, so that overnight, everything froze. So the concept here was that it wasn't just the fact that there was a molasses flood. Now it was frozen. And there was just no way to actually extricate many of these people. And that's when many of the horses that had been injured had to be put down. So it was something that was more of a magnitude that people can even imagine that though it was a molasses flood, it was something that really devastated a part of the city. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
That's incredible. No one ever thinks about what happened that night, and then the the temperature drops down to where the the molasses freeze, exactly locking everything in place. That's insane. Right. Well, the funny thing was um, when I did this entry, which was in my book on Lost Boston. I I'll give you a quote. It says that the cleanup was of such enormous quantities of molasses which was literally two to three feet deep throughout the area before it seeped through the streets, was to take about two weeks and was undertaken by the City of Boston Fire Department that began by washing the molasses-covered cobblestone streets with salt water from the fire hoses sunk into the Boston Harbor for weeks, trying to wash away the residue of the sweet but devastating substance. And in that instance, there was a man by the name of Captain James Buchanan, who was captain of Engine 31 in the North End. And by using salt water, still it was cold, but the salt water cut the thickness of the residue of the molasses, and they continued to wash the streets so that many times even today, people say that there's a a sweet-smelling aroma of molasses on an extremely humid August day. Yeah, we've heard that rumor. I worked at a bar down there in the financial district, and they said that the basement had a sweet smell to it. Could have just been the power of suggestion, but I swear I, I did smell that when it got <laughs> when it got hot. <laughs> I but... <laughs> know. If we want to believe, we will smell it. <laughs> exactly. What were the more long-term repercussions of this financially, and who did who was ultimately set to blame for this, if anybody? Well, the funny thing was the city of Boston looked at this as a devastation, and with 21 people killed that went the gamut from very young children all the way to older senior adults, it was something in some ways that people did a class-action lawsuit against the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. The people came forward with all sorts of different stories of the tank having leaked over a dozen years before the tank exploded, the fact that they had been reported and things of that sort. But the thing was, because many of these people themselves were usually working class and immigrants, they weren't taken seriously. And the surprising thing was, though there was a class action lawsuit and they were sued, Purity Distilling, which was the subsidiary of the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, would actually only see roughly $7,000 going to each person or their family survivors for their death, which was really devastating. I think in a lot of ways, many of these people that had died were the breadwinners of their family. But I think what it really did was to see that the weights and seal scaling, which is the city of Boston's weights and seal measuring company, is something that actually goes out and inspects anything that has any type of a uh, substance, whether it's molasses or gasoline or anything of that sort. And it became more prevalent that they actually had to actually inspect it and then certify that they had actually inspected it. So I think in that instance, the molasses tank itself, though devastating when it exploded and with the deaths of many of these people, what it really did was to actually make people more cognizant of the fact of having uh, tanks that were inspected and you know, not only able to hold the molasses, but didn't actually fluctuate by the temperature of the day. Wow. 
Uh, I, I have a uh, sort of a, I don't know if it's a gruesome question or what, but I'm kind of curious on how horrendous these these deaths were. Was this something that was like an instant death for most of these people? Did it like slam them like a car or it was something where they got engulfed and then suffocated? Many people did actually suffocate. Um, some people were actually in a house, and this is a story that I've read, that the house was actually built of wood and it was moved by the intensity of the molasses off of its foundations, and it was smashed into the girders of the elevated railway. Many people did die outright, but a lot of people would die from their injuries, and some even didn't die for over a year. But the whole aspect was that these people themselves undoubtedly uh, suffered tremendously. The American Red Cross, as well as hospitals, descended on the area within an hour, there are photographs of Red Cross trucks taking people in ambulances to various hospitals. But it must have been one of the most horrendous things to realize that when you finally got to a place such as a medical facility, one was covered in molasses. So it was something that was not just the fact that you could be treated. They had to actually clean the molasses before they could even inspect the person's injuries. So... It was something that really did affect not just humans, but, you know, horses and animals. And as I mentioned, uh, one person wasn't found for over a week, and it was a body that was covered not only in molasses, but by debris on the edge of the waterfront. Jeez, and I can imagine when police and the, the medics arrived, how did they get into this area? They're obviously dealing with... Uh equipment and automobiles and horses you know they don't have the vehicles that we have today how how did they manage to get into the no pun intended like the thick of it exactly and there were many photographs that were from the boston public library collection that i had seen that would show many of the nurses and doctors and police and fire going to the scene and all you saw was from the knees up the molasses was so thick they waded into this area. Now, if you had something that was two to three feet deep, it's tremendous. It's something in a lot of ways that you realize it's something that could actually cause you to lose your balance. You might even fall. But the idea was if one was injured, they were usually prostrate, and two to three feet was at least two to three times the height of their prostate body. People did suffocate from the molasses. Um, by simply drowning, so to speak, in molasses. But it was something in a lot of ways that these people themselves didn't know where to look. Was it a an attack by an anarchist or uh, something that many people said that there were gunshots? Was it the fact that it was the rivets popping from the steel as the steel itself contracted or expanded? Or was it the fact that in this instance many people realized that it was probably one of the worst scenarios that today has become almost one of those surreal facts about the city of Boston and its ever-evolving history, a molasses flood. Wow, that's really interesting because I never thought of that with the concept of these people hearing it hearing it, and, and seeing it happen and then trying to figure out after what it was because we can look back on it 
in a historical perspective and say, oh, it was because the temperature was two and then it went up to 40 something and it was the expansion and contraction and that and the rivets popped out. But back then, was there actually legit concern that this was some some sort of attack or with with people hearing gunfire that maybe it was uh, like a sabotage well, thing? In the latter part of the teens of the 20th century, you had to realize after World War One, many of the soldiers had come home. They had seen social anarchy in Europe. There were social anarchists in Boston as well. And many of these people themselves looked at this as something that, in a socialistic aspect, in the 1920s and 1930s, many people felt this was something that was an alternative to our republic. They were social anarchists. And many times you had to realize in some ways that this could have been something that was this type of a thing, because in the North End, it was a primarily immigrant group, and many people were coming to the New World to actually have a better life. But some were also coming to radicalize people. And it was known with this aspect that many people could wreak havoc. And though it wasn't that, it was still a possibility. And many people realized in some ways that the tank's explosion was something that was inevitable because, as I mentioned, for at least a dozen years, people have been complaining about this constant um, wailing, almost like the, the steel of the tank continued to contract and expand. But it was something in a lot of ways that when it happened, it was so devastating and it happened at the height of the day when the most people would be on the street at their lunch hour. But it was also a place that you saw working people, people on pedestrians on sidewalks. But the one fortunate thing was there was no train traveling on the elevated railway as the tank exploded. Oh, that's fortunate. Yeah. Could you imagine that? That would have derailed it. That would have sent it down. Wow. As if it couldn't have gotten any worse. Correct. Yes, that's the truth. Wow. So how long did it take for the cleanup to take place and and to get things sort of back in order? Well, from January right through to early summer, it was something that was incredible. It wasn't just the fact of cleaning up the molasses, but there was devastation in all parts. That portion of the elevator railway had to be taken down and rebuilt. Eventually, it was demolished during World War II. But it had to be rebuilt because the steel girders had been compromised. But, of course, along the waterfront itself, which was adjacent to what was then the North End Beach, they would clear it of all of the debris. It was primarily wood. And in that way, by clearing it, they were able to rebuild many of the commercial structures. But it took upwards of at least six months just to clean up and at least a year before the area took on a semblance again of what it had once been. But the surprising thing is today there are two parks there, the Langone Park and Puapolo Park, and they're two open spaces that overlook the Boston Harbor. They're magnificent, but it's something today that represents the site of the Boston molasses tank, but it's something in some ways that people can't really fathom 2.3 million gallons of molasses cascading down Commercial Street. I think that's that's totally accurate. And we, we were talking about it here in the office, and I was telling Lance that I have a hard time picturing 
how this thing unfolded because when you look at the devastation in the aftermath, you basically just see a yard. You know, it's like, well, you're saying a, a tidal wave. It's, it's uh, I, I almost feel like I need to see an animation for it to fully make sense in my head. I had seen one on Facebook recently, and it was a very interesting but an animated depiction of the tank from the time of, say, the early part of the morning right through to the flooding itself. And it was extremely interesting because I think a lot of people cannot really imagine this happening. And when I included in my writing or I included in my lectures, because I do a lecture, which I call from the slave trade to the great flood of 1919, molasses was an integral part of the triangle trade of the world economy that many people can't really imagine the something that we use two or three tablespoons when we make gingerbread can be magnitude to 2.3 million gallons and realize that it's something that really became part of the lore and the history of Boston. I'd like to use the comparison of the green monster at Fenway, and that's 39 feet, I believe. So yes. this tank was 50 feet. 50 feet in height and 250 feet around. So it was enormous. It's incredible. And I think a lot of times when we look at the green monster and we say to ourselves, wow, that's a huge backboard. But you can imagine almost another, what, 11 feet. Yeah, 13. And you realize the height. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, and uh, they they added a marker down in uh, Langone Park, uh, uh, Molasses Flood Historical Marker. And it kind of notes it. But it does say a 40-foot wave of molasses. Well, it may have been taller than I think, but usually it's, I've always read it was around 25 feet. But 40 feet, if it had broke at the very top, um, it would have actually cascaded down. But I think it was more towards the middle of the tank itself. Yeah. But the tank simply just burst open. So it was something in a lot of ways. Whether it was 25 or 40 feet, it was still devastating. I've always said, uh, anything over 10-foot waves of molasses, and I'm out. (laughs) I think all of us would be. (laughs) It's just something that we can't realize, that this is something that, you know, really did kill people that were loved and who loved. They basically started their day and went to work, or they basically were going about their business, and they were just simply swept to their deaths. I know. I feel like it's just such a tragedy. And I said at the beginning of this that I feel bad because in the beginning when people would ask me or when I first heard about it, I would kind of chuckle because it has this ridiculous sound to it. It's a molasses flood and you think that it just caused some damage. But then once you look into it, it gets more and more disturbing and tragic and and horrific. And it's sort of losing its place in history. And I feel like what you do and what we're trying to do, we'll put this ep- episode out there, is to just keep it in people's perspective, keep it in people's line of sight. I, and that's uh, what history should be. I exactly. think a lot of people don't realize history like this is something that has to be told for our children and grandchildren to actually remember it. And I think sometimes it's something that shows how a city changes and evolves. But this, something of this sort is just, just incredible. To your point, I was at a bar about two weeks ago, and I overheard the bartender tell one of the customers that they had a special drink on the menu, 
and it was called the Great Molasses Flood, and he explained what was in it, and then they said, oh, why is it called the Great Molasses Flood? And he said, oh, that's the flood that happened, I think, in the 20s in, like, July when the molasses got really hot. And Ooh. I was, like, livid. I was like, <laughs> I was like... I, it, it doesn't take much, Anthony. It doesn't take much to get me livid, yeah, but, you know, I know. don't well, miss you know, I've, history. I've, I've heard many times tour guides in Boston telling stories, and... I, I stop sometimes just to listen, and I am always astonished at how people can turn a phrase and create in some ways bits and pieces of the truth and then a little bit of embellishment. Yeah. You, you can't embellish the Great Molasses Flood. This was something that now has really, a hundred years later, become part of the city's history, and a lot of times we have to realize the magnitude of it and the things that actually happened because of it. Right. And that, yeah, that was why I asked about the uh, the size of the wave because I noticed the discrepancy and I uh it it seems like that sometimes legend kind of get, gets a hold of uh people and and the, the people uh who are talking about things from the past, but uh to your credit, you went the opposite way on that. <laughs> well, I think if it was at 40 feet, there may have been even more of devastation. Um, yeah. And I think maybe even the tracks would have come down or something of that sort. Right. 40 feet tall in a wave that is with the density of molasses, I think it probably would have caused the elevated to be tipped. 25 feet was devastating enough, but I think a lot of people have to look at that, you know, per cubic inch force of molasses. It is something that is really powerful. So, and it was also something in a lot of ways that was thick and glutinous and disgusting so that people themselves basically did drown. So it was really horrible. And I remember reading somewhere that it wasn't just limited to the immediate area that the wave affected. People would go there to check it out later on and they would get it on their shoes and they it started tr being tracked throughout the whole city. So yes. it, the, even the cleanup went from the immediate area like ground zero and and you know to where it spread to then the rest of the city where people have it on their shoes and their clothing and it's it's just being spread out everywhere. It's true. And molasses did seep through not only the cobblestones, but it actually seeped into the soil that was between Commercial Street and the waterfront. So it really did, I'm sure for years, people could have actually smelt it. But today, I think it's probably so um, dissipated that many people do think in some ways that it's something that they can smell. But I'm sure it did for about three or four years after the flood. But it was something that really was tracked around the city. There were stories of not only uh, wagon wheels, carts, and of course even shoes, but horses, which were used even at that point, you know, for pulling carriages and horses. So it was something that was really a, a huge, massive cleanup. But by washing them with salt water, the sidewalks and the cobblestone streets at least it gotten some of the residue off. Here's a, a report here from the Boston Post, and it's just part of it. It says, Horses died like so many flies on sticky fly paper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, yeah. men and women, suffered likewise. Exactly. Horrible. And I think one of the sad things was many of the humans themselves didn't have the horrendous death that the horses did. Because many of these horses had broken legs, and of course, as they continued to 
move within the molasses itself. They did further damage that they had to be put down. And it was a sad situation because horses were an important part um, of the city, even at that time. And one thing's 1919, but still horses were used to pull wagons and carriages. And in that instance, um, to see so many of them actually lost, it was really quite sad. My God, I can't even imagine that. A lot of people back then, their livelihood required them to have a horse. I mean, exactly, this, exactly. This residual the hay effect. Market, the haymarket, too. So, yeah. Sad. So, I don't think that you want your phone number going out there. Where no. would you. <laughs> Where would you want people to look if they wanted more information aside from calling you and saying, "Hey, give me the uh, give me the forty minute um, version, 411. the four one one on this"? Is there an area well, down know, there that they can go and and check out? Well, Stephen Puglio had written a book called Dark Tide, and it has a wonderful overlay of the history of not only the molasses flood itself, but the area beforehand and then the aftermath. I think in some ways it chronicles not only the beginnings of people's complaints about the leaking tank, but it also goes into great detail about the aftermath and, of course, the lawsuit that was actually taken up by the survivors of the people that were killed. Is there any book that you can uh, you want to promote to the listeners if they're interested in historical events in Boston that you have written? Right. And another book is Lost Boston that was written by Anthony Samarco that has an entry on the history and the aftermath of the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. It's a wonderful book that was published by Pavilion in London, and it goes into great detail from 1850 to the present of things that were lost in every century that were once part of the history and overlay of the city of Boston. 